sepsis is inherently difficult to diagnose. There is lots and lots of controversy. Some aspects of the bundle might actually be causing patient harm. Ultimately, so many we treat start off along the sepsis pathway don't actually have sepsis at the end of the day. You should, when there's diagnostic uncertainty, think about what's going on with the patient. Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm so happy that you're joining us for yet another CCPEM podcast. Now, you may recall last podcast we had a guest. We had Dr. Ken Butler reviewing his expert pearls on the physiologically difficult airway. And on this podcast, we have another guest, another guest that you've heard before, Dr. Gabe Wardy. He is an amazing EM intensivist out of San Diego, California. He is currently an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine, as well as the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine in the Department of Medicine. And he was on a few months ago in terms of the podcast, talking about another resuscitation topic. And in this podcast, I'm so happy for him to be returning because like last podcast with the physiologically difficult airway, we're going to jump into a new article, per se, on the management of sepsis, the most common critical illness that we see by far in the emergency department. And there is lots and lots of controversy. So before we delve into that, Gabe, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. We are excited to have you lead us in this discussion. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for having me back. It's always exciting to get to speak with you. So thank you. Well, you sent us this article, and I'm going to say this is going to be one of those important articles, maybe one of the most important articles that I think emergency physicians should read this year in 2021 in terms of sepsis resuscitation. And it's in press at the moment, actually in press or in preparation within Annals of Emergency Medicine. So it's something that many of us are just starting to see, and many more of us will see once it does hint print in Annals of Emergency Medicine. And this is a consensus-based task force report dealing with, quote, early care of adults with suspected sepsis in the emergency department and out-of-hospital environment. It looks like Dr. Yealy was the lead author of this and I think of the task force. And I feel there are some very, very pertinent and very important pearls in this article. What do you think? Absolutely. It's no surprise that I sent this one to you because, like you mentioned, we see so much sepsis in the emergency department and in the intensive care unit. And like you said, there are so many controversies right now between what providers would like to do versus guidelines versus national quality measures. And I think what made me so excited about reading this is not only the author list, it's just a group of all-stars, you know, some of the top sepsis researchers out there. But the way that they approached this was to actually go through and give very evidence-based recommendations. And they didn't intend this to be a practice standard per se, but much rather intended for this to inform physicians at the bedside by summarizing the best available evidence to help us improve care of the patients that we're taking care of in the emergency department. So kudos to this group. They put a lot of work into it. And I think that for me, at least, as someone that deals with hospital sepsis on a administrative level, this is a breath of fresh air. And I think for also every clinician out there that is sick and tired of being told that they have to follow a sepsis bundle because there's a national quality measure for it, this again gives you know very, very good insights into that. 
I completely agree. And many of us, we know we've got SEP1 out there. We've got Surviving Sepsis Campaign. We'll set the background as we head into this discussion and talk about some things that this consensus-based task force recommend in this report. Absolutely. Well, I think one thing that's always important just to remind ourselves just how prevalent sepsis is in the emergency department. And it's estimated that there's probably just under a million visits a year that come through of either sepsis or septic shock that come through our doors as emergency medicine providers. And, you know, the truth is the vast majority of these will be treated in the emergency department. And a lot of them also are going to be treated or identified in the pre-hospital setting. So it's something that the actions that we have have a tremendous impact on patient care. And I think what this group wanted to do was to really kind of highlight some of the difficulties that emergency medicine providers are having and identify strategies moving forward. And specifically, I think one of the major objectives that this group had was to really kind of talk about and identify some of the shortcomings of what we have right now with both our SEP1 national quality measure, but also some of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. And just to emphasize a little bit more on that, you know, if you look back at the history of surviving sepsis, right, the surviving sepsis campaign has been around since 2002. And I think they've done so much good to improve the care of septic patients worldwide. Unfortunately, though, there are a lot of criticisms of some of the more recent bundles that they've put forward, particularly the one in 2018 that they put forward outlined a one-hour bundle. And in that one-hour bundle, the recommendations they had were to start antibiotics, check blood cultures before antibiotics, screen with the lactate, start a 30 cc per kilo fluid bolus if the patient had hypotension, and start vasoactive medications if the patient didn't respond to the fluid bolus. And this has been something that's been hotly debated by professional societies and the literature as well. And we've started to see different camps come up from this. We have some, you know, that are very much in favor of the surviving sepsis campaign and others that say, hey, we don't have a lot of evidence on that. And it's become almost, you know, to the point where these are very dogmatic approaches where it's what I say is right because I've said that and I'm going to give you the same reasons every time and not really be particularly flexible with the literature. And I think most of us believe the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Along with this, in 2015 is when the SEP1, the National Sepsis Quality Measure, was released. And this was heavily influenced by the group that makes the Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommendations. And this has also been met with some resistance. There's been a lot of concern that some of the aspects of the bundle are not heavily based in evidence, and alternatively, that some aspects of the bundle might actually be causing patient harm when there's significant diagnostic uncertainty if sepsis is present or not. Other groups, for instance, the Infectious Disease Society of America, have come out with criticisms of the SEP1 quality measure and stated very, very explicitly that they do hope there are some revisions that will occur in the coming years. So it is something that is ripe with controversy, and I really do applaud ASEP for putting together this excellent task force to kind of come up with some recommendations on how we can best care for the patients in front of us. Outstanding introduction to that. Well, in terms of the first section of the document, I think it's addressing a critical point. You mentioned that you're involved in an administrative sepsis at your organization. I'm involved in developing those metrics and following those metrics at the University of Maryland. But in many cases, 
we've gone round and round in just recognizing sepsis, settling in on a definition, early screening of those with sepsis, and ultimately so many we treat start off along the sepsis pathway don't actually have sepsis at the end of the day. So perhaps take us through the key points in this beginning or initial portion of this task force report. Absolutely. And I think this is, I think, one of the things that makes sepsis care so frustrating for providers is that we have different approaches to how it's diagnosed. If you're someone that uses SEP1 for their definition or some of the older versions of the surviving sepsis campaign, you base this on the systemic inflammatory response syndrome. If you look, though, in 2016 with the international consensus guidelines, they define sepsis as a dysregulated post-response to infection that's quantified by worsening organ dysfunction that confers about a 10% increase in mortality. And the clinical construct of that would be that a patient would have a two-point change in their SOFA score. And so unfortunately, we have these two competing systems that don't always overlap that well. And we're asking clinicians to kind of ram patients into some of these sometimes very, very quickly, particularly with the SEP1 quality measure. And so what this group did is the first thing that they wanted to do was make sure that we could all speak the same language. And the way that they went ahead and the way that they defined sepsis is going to be a confirmed or suspected infection with newer worsening organ dysfunction and a dysregulated host response that is based on SOFA scores. So they've kind of abandoned the Sears criteria, which I think probably makes sense as we move forward. We've seen so many reasons why Sears criteria are not going to pick up on all the patients with sepsis. And alternatively, there are so many conditions that will cause a systemic inflammatory response that are not going to actually have sepsis. So I think they did a very good job by kind of at least outline at first what we're talking about with sepsis. They then go on to talk about the definition of septic shock. We always deal with this. We talk about starting on pressors. Oh, they're in septic shock. But I think the way that they did it also mirrors what happened in 2016 with international consensus guidelines, namely patients that have received a fluid bolus that have a lactate greater than two and require vasoactive medications. So again, I think the first thing, it's very smart to make sure that everyone is kind of on the same page with how they're doing this. All right. Well, in terms of screening, I think there's been a ton of screening tools out there in order to help us with early identification of sepsis in the emergency department. Is there any one that's better than the other? What should we be using? Yikes. So I think that's a somewhat of an unfair question because I think if you go back, you can look at the literature and you can find electronic medical health record approaches to identifying sepsis. You can look at kind of screening based on QSOFA. You can look at it based on Sears. And unfortunately, we don't have a highly reliable approach yet to kind of screen patients for sepsis. And I think this makes sense when you see how heterogeneous this condition is. So this task force made a few very salient points about this. The first is that sepsis is inherently difficult to diagnose. And I think this is one of the things that with this degree of diagnostic uncertainty that they state that providers should probably think a little bit about what's going on with the patient in front of them before enacting a lot of these bundles that are recommended. And I think that's a big departure from what we've seen in the past, where a lot of times patients are kind of lumped in, they might be septic, let's start going down our bundles, let's give them antibiotics within a few hours, let's get the big fluid bolus going. And what we've seen is a lot of times we're just wrong on that. Between 20 and 40% of patients, 
that come through the emergency department with suspected sepsis end up having another condition. And if you go down a sepsis bundle on someone that's having a heart failure exacerbation, cardiogenic shock, pulmonary embolism, any number of confounders that I've seen that we've been wrong on, and I'm sure you have too at your shop, we get in a lot of trouble. So to go back to answering your question, the group recognizes the inherent complexities of sepsis and has not identified one particular approach that works best in the emergency department to pick up on these patients. So it makes you think. All right. Outstanding. That was a little bit of a leading question in terms of what they said for screening tools. And I completely agree with you, Gabe, and the authors of this task force that there is currently no valid evidence-based tool or strategy for sepsis screening that improves sepsis recognition in the emergency department. Well, with that, let's kind of dive into what we should be thinking about at the bedside. Those controversies regarding timing of antibiotics, the quantity of fluid resuscitation, the timing of vasopressor initiation, all critical questions that we as bedside emergency clinicians really need to know about. Take us through, once again, this document, but focusing on just the general principles of early sepsis management. What should we be doing to evaluate for the source of infection and then, in essence, assessing the patient's severity as we lead into fluid resuscitation and vasopressor administration? Absolutely. So with this, I think some of the steps in this are not particularly controversial, right? Some of these, I think everyone agrees with that, for instance, doing a history and a good physical to help identify infection and organ dysfunction. It doesn't matter who you are. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. But I think one thing that they really, really do kind of come down on is that in the past, we've always been fed that these, you know, things like early goal-directed therapy makes a huge difference. All these bundles significantly improve our patient outcomes. And this group very appropriately points out some of the flaws with that logic And specifically, they point to some of the few randomized control trials that have been done in the sepsis literature. And these all were published 2014, 2015. We had process, we had a rise, and we had promise. And these trials done over three or four different continents with thousands of patients all showed that there was no difference between early goal-directed therapy or usual care. And obviously, you know, the impact of what Dr. Rivers had previously done when he published early goal-directed therapy in 2001 cannot be understated in terms of the emphasis that early aggressive care for septic patients makes a lot of sense. But since then, since we've implemented a lot of his core tenets of his approach into clinical practice and it's become usual care, we've seen there's not that much of a benefit of pursuing down his full algorithm. And specifically, I think, you know, kind of the nail in the coffin in this happened when these three randomized trials in 2015 came out with a patient-level meta-analysis, where they looked at all the patients that were enrolled in these three trials to see if there was any benefit to early goal-directed therapy. They said, no, we don't see any benefit. It holds in the not-so-sick patients. It holds in the sicker patients. So that's one thing that this group did mention. I think the other thing, too, that they emphasize on this is that a lot of these sepsis bundles and studies had very strict inclusion criteria that do not necessarily apply to the patients that we are taking care of in the emergency department currently. Currently, with SEP1 definitions, 
it's relatively easy to get included into having severe sepsis, right? You come in, you've run around outside a little bit, get seated in the emergency department, you're a little bit tachycardic, you're a little bit febrile, your heart rate's up because you've been running around, your lactate comes back at 2.1, and suddenly provider feels this pressure to start early antibiotics on you without really thinking about what's going on. A lot of places emphasize, you know, significant fluid resuscitation. So this group pushes back and says, hey, let's take a look first of all and realize that usual care is usually pretty good. But also let's take a look and see, is the patient in front of me actually indicative of the prior studies that have been done on this? Love it. Well, what about evaluating for the source of infection? You know, blood culture timing, there's some recent articles on that. And then severity assessment, arterial, venous lactate, which should we use? Is there a scoring system that we should be really educating ourselves on and using consistently? You've already mentioned SOFA score. Take us through some of those aspects. Absolutely. So I think the first thing that comes up with, you know, evaluation for the source of infection is, again, there's some relatively freebies here that I think everyone would agree with. If there's concern for possible infection, they recommend getting blood cultures prior to antibiotics. The one caveat is there's going to be a significant delay in antibiotic administration if you are waiting for the cultures to be drawn, if there's significant difficulties getting access or for whatever reason, I think then if the group appropriately says that it's very, very reasonable to start antibiotics prior to that, but really try to avoid that. And I think that's consensus. Everyone I think that you talk about that takes care of septic patients or any patient for that matter agrees with that. They give some very logical ones also on kind of, you know, targeting who needs an extensive workup versus who needs a lesser workup, again, based on history and physical. That again, I think it's very refreshing to see that rather than being told what to do. When it comes to severity assessment of infection and sepsis, this is where I think it gets a little bit controversial right now in terms of what they recommend compared to what we have been previously doing. And the group does recommend checking a lactate. And you've previously discussed this on some podcasts, but it really doesn't matter if it's arterial or venous. You'll get a good assessment of kind of what's going on there so we don't have to do unnecessary arterial sticks. But what I think is very interesting is the group points out that the evidence for a repeat lactate has been largely limited to patients that have had a lactate greater than four to see any kind of benefit. So what they say that's in contrast to uh, the 2015 CMS-CEP1 is that lactate should only be repeated if they're greater than four or if it looks like the patient is decompensating. So again, this is a big change of kind of what we're seeing that every patient that has a lactate greater than two needs to have this repeated. And so it is something I think that to sit there and say, hey, why are we doing this? Do we need to check a bunch of lactates on all these patients? Because I know it's certainly tremendous expense to the healthcare system when you add up all these extra lactates that are being checked. Uh, but a lot of times it's uncomfortable for patients. And we don't have a lot of evidence that particularly for these patients that have a lactate less than four, but greater than two, that we're actually improving any kind of outcome with them. So again, prudent and evidence-based, which is what I love about this group, how they approach this. All right. Outstanding. Well, let's dive into probably one of the most controversial questions and see if this document provides us with some guidance, and that is fluid resuscitation. Once I feel the patient's septic, should I just open up my EHR order set, have the predefined checkboxes clicked off for either normal saline, LR, or plasmalite at 30 mLs per kilogram? What do I do? So I think you know, this has been debated extremely intensely. And I think that we have seen so much pushback, so many questions about where does this magic 30 cc's per kilo come from? Where is the evidence that what I'm doing actually improving patient care? 
And this group does a very good job, actually, of going through and highlighting some of the evidence. And they give very, very logical recommendations on this. And if you look again, you know, some of the evidence on this, we haven't seen the patients that get 30 cc's per kilo of of fluid resuscitation in the first three hours have different outcomes than those that get it or that don't get it. It's been a controversial thing. And I think if you look at some of the best evidence for this, we go to New York, where they kind of looked at the entire experience with early sepsis bundles. It's a state law there. And what they showed is that while their bundles did look like there was every hour completion, an improvement in mortality, the fluid bolus component had nothing to do with that. It was relatively static if you completed it with one hour within 12 hours. So the group highlights this evidence. And where they go from there is what they say, do not give a recommendation for any kind of pre-specified volume or body mass adjusted volume for patients. Although they are very prudent in this, and I think very diplomatic and say, many patients will benefit from a 30 milliliter per kilo fluid bolus, although some may benefit from more and some may benefit from less. So they really do scour the evidence. They provide very, very, I think, thoughtful recommendations on this. And I think many of the listeners would know my personal bias towards choice of fluids, but do they give nod to one direction or the other in terms of the type of fluid? Well, they did. And I think just a few things to emphasize before we jump there, because I know exactly your opinion on this, and I think many people do. I think we've previously written a paper, actually, where we've discussed this. But some other important things that the group says is they don't really recommend a specific fluid volume prior to starting vasoactive medications. And I think this is something that a lot of times providers feel that urge to kind of wait. Let's make sure we get a preset volume in, typically this 30 cc's per kilo, and then we can start thinking about vasoactive medications. We know the point of giving the fluid bolus is to improve preload, to increase our cardiac output, to prevent end organ damage. And I think they're very smart with this and saying, hey, if someone is not responding to fluid in front of you and you're worried about them, get the presser started a little bit earlier. You don't have to wait for that full fluid bolus to come in. So to answer your question, though, about the fluid type to use, it's no surprise that particularly with one of the authors that I think was pretty involved with the major literature that's come out on this in the past few years is that they make a recommendation to use balanced crystalloids. And I know many people have kind of gone over this Normal saline has kind of become a villain. You know, it's got an interesting history, a little bit of a misnomer, but we've started to see a lot of patient-centered data that says, particularly in septic patients, that balanced crystalloids do better when it comes to renal injury, need for dialysis, and even for some of these composite outcomes, maybe even a little bit better mortality with very, very large sample size there. So again, it's refreshing to see that they give an evidence-based approach that I think puts into writing what we've all been thinking and doing for quite some time. All right. I certainly like to hear that for sure. And I absolutely want to emphasize the point you made about early vasopressor use. That can't be driven home enough in terms of starting them concurrently or concomitantly at the time that someone is really appearing moribund rather than waiting for the requisite amount of fluid to be given before initiating that infusion. Quick question on pressors. You know, I think most of us, if nearly all of us, would initiate pressors with norepinephrine as our first line agent and then making a little bit of a purposeful decision if a second pressor is needed between vasopressin and epi. Any differing opinion in this task force recommendation on that? 
No, I think that's exactly what they recommend in this. And again, pressors, there is a few studies that have been done on them that are randomized, but it really does seem like norepinephrine is the one to go to. What they did, though, what they mentioned that I think makes a lot of sense is at first they say target that MAP is 65, but recognize some patients, particularly those with chronic hypertension, may benefit from a higher mean arterial pressure to target. And they outright suggest, hey, take a look at the patient. Is their urine output increasing? Is their lactate decreasing? It's kind of markers to kind of assess to see if you need to go at a higher or even potentially a lower level with your vasoactive medications. So again, I think they spot on. I think a lot of us that practice both in the ED and the ICU thought this was very, very well done here. All right, well, let's tackle probably one of the other biggest controversial areas, and that is antimicrobials, specifically the time of antimicrobial administration from the identification of sepsis and these quality or national metrics that many are beholden to. Where does this document provide guidance? Where do they come down in terms of the evidence to support a specific time frame for antimicrobial administration? All right. If you look at probably what spawned this document, I obviously was not there, but I'm guessing a lot of this had to do as a retort to the 2018 Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommendations that antibiotics should be administered within one hour for patients with sepsis and septic shock. And while the guidelines do emphasize that sepsis is a medical emergency, this is something that has been pushed back on by so many professional societies. And so what the group here does is they very succinctly summarize the evidence on why antibiotics make a lot of sense. But they acknowledge that the strongest evidence for the administration of antibiotics comes in patients with septic shock. And classically, the mistake that I see when we're talking about sepsis literature is everyone cites the 2006 Kumar study saying that every hour antibiotics are delayed, mortality goes up by 7%. And they forget that these are patients with septic shock and it's every hour after the initial hypotensive reading occurs. And so the group very clearly says, right, we see our strongest evidence is for septic shock. And when this diagnosis is likely or present, by all means, get the antibiotics on as soon as possible. They also don't give us any specific time frame for doing this, citing that there is a relative lack of evidence on this. And, you know, there are a few studies that make sense to mention on why they said this. The first is a pre-hospital study that's one of also the few randomized trials we have with antibiotics and septic patients. And it came out of the Netherlands, and they looked to see if early EMS administration of antibiotics versus usual care in the emergency department impacted outcomes. And there was no difference in outcomes. So they cite that. And again, going back to the New York experience with their bundled care, a lot of times, you know, the people in the surviving sepsis campaign will cite this study saying that every hour mortality went up if antibiotics were not administered for patients with severe sepsis. But when you take a look at the fine print, you'll see that on average in the first five hours, there's really no difference in mortality when antibiotics are given for these patients that have the definition of severe sepsis. So the group acknowledges this. They say, hey, you know what? We don't really know the ideal time that antibiotics needs to be administered. Shorter is obviously better, 
but the precise time frame to optimally improve patient outcomes is yet to be determined. And I think they also emphasize here that we've seen a lot of collateral damage from this inadvertent blasting of broad-spectrum antibiotics on patients that don't necessarily have sepsis, where someone, like you mentioned, pulls up their sepsis bundle and starts clicking Venk, Zosin, mindlessly without kind of taking a really good look at their patient. And so this group really does emphasize that you should, when there's diagnostic uncertainty, think about what's going on with the patient before administering antibiotics, particularly if shock is not present. I think that's exceedingly helpful, well-stated, Gabe. And I'll be honest, I've already forwarded this article on with highlighting that section alone to our sepsis group for discussion as we revisit a lot of these here at the University of Maryland. Now, leading into the next portion of the article, I think this kind of delves into more of care of the septic patient who remains in the ED for a little bit longer. And I don't know if it's been the same for you out in California, but at least through the past year in the COVID pandemic, I think ED boarding, especially of critically ill patients, has worsened. Our times are up and the quantity and number of boarders are up along with their overall ED length of stay. And a lot of that for many critical illnesses translates into the emergency physician delivering so much more critical care than they were even a year or so ago or two years ago. And we know that there's been that gradual trend towards more and more critical care over the past decade in many of our EDs. And to that end, if you could take us through sort of the last half of the document here and how to think about fluids beyond what we choose in terms of administering as an initial dose, what we should be thinking about in terms of a continued monitoring patients, the importance of additional doses of antimicrobial therapy, and then any other key points on patients who are remaining in the ED with sepsis before going upstairs. Perfect. Well, I think, like you said, let's tackle the fluids question first, right? And I think everyone agrees that the vast majority of patients do benefit from some kind of upfront fluid bolus to augment their cardiac output. But after that, the question is, what's the optimal approach? And I think the group here gives, again, very, very thoughtful and salient recommendations where they say this should be individualized based on the patient in front of you. We know that up to about 50% of patients or so with septic shock aren't going to respond to fluids. And we know that continually bombarding them with fluids is going to cause worse outcomes longer ICU stays, worsening kidney injury, potentially even a mortality spike based on that as every day if they continue a fluid bolus. So the recommendation is to look at your patient, which I think makes a ton of sense. You know, it gives the power back to the clinician to do what they think is right. They also discuss pretty clearly the ideal way to reassess a patient. They lay out two different approaches. And again, both I think are very logical. One of them is to do a clinical evaluation, listen to the patient's lungs, take a look, you know, to see if there's any jugular venous distension after fluid resuscitation, is peripheral edema starting? And the other way that they mention this is kind of goes through and look at some kind of quantitative evaluation. And again, you know, they kind of break it down to things that I'm almost positive that I've listened to your prior team discuss on this podcast, looking at either some kind of static measurement or some kind of dynamic measurement. Static measurement means looking at something maybe like a CVP, whereas dynamic means something like a passive leg raise or looking at velocity time intervals on your echocardiogram. And they give the recommendation that either one of these, either clinical examination or some kind of quantitative approach makes sense. But if you do the quantitative approach, probably do something dynamic because we think that's probably going to be a little bit better answer 
but they recognize none of these have ever been shown to improve mortality. Great, great points. What about vascular access? Do I need to worry about central venous access in the ED or am I okay? And a little bit of a leading question there in terms of peripheral IV access on pressors, but what does this document say? No, I think it's a very fair question. And, you know, I think that the group recommends what I think a lot of people are already doing already, right? That as long as you, if you have a good peripheral IV, ideally, you know, 16, 18 gauge in the antecubital fossa, that you're more than fine to start peripheral vasoactive medications. It hurts me to say that, though, because I feel that a lot of our residents, that's what they do, and they lose a good amount of experience placing central lines, and I don't think they're leaving as well trained in the insertion of these as before. But we've seen this time and time again that it is safe to administer peripheral pressors through a good IV that's ideally proximal and not distal. And that's what this group recommends, as long as it's for short-term use and we're not seeing this go on for days and days and days. So it is an important thing that they mention. They also do comment on things like arterial lines. And again, it's very prudent and it's very well thought what they say. These might help in care, but they're not routinely needed. And you should not feel that you drop everything to kind of run and place either a central line or an arterial line in a patient. All right. Well, coming down the home stretch here, let's get to just a few other questions I have for you before wrapping things up with your final takeaway points. In terms of additional therapies, we've reviewed on the podcast probably a little while ago some articles that have highlighted patients who are still boarding in the ED with sepsis. We kind of forget about those second and possibly third doses of antibiotics. It's an area that we certainly have room for improvement. So I think it's important that they emphasize make sure that we are delivering subsequent doses at the optimal time intervals of additional antimicrobials. But I'm wondering, you know, there was a whole lot printed and published in 20 during COVID on the metabolic cocktail, vitamin C, hydrocortisone, or corticosteroids and thymine. And did the authors sort of synthesize all that data and make any recommendations on that adjunctive therapy and or any others? They did. And I think the way that they laid it out, let's talk from the most important to do for your patients to things that you should probably not do. So by all means, you've got to get your patients that are stuck in the ED that second or even third dose of antibiotics. We know that delays in this have been shown time and time again to worsen outcomes. So by all means, think, hey, I need to make sure that this is happening. Either I'll take responsibility for it the team that's coming on for me or the hospitalist team will. So super important for that. They do mention the so-called metabolic resuscitation or the Merrick cocktail, whatever you want to call it. And they come down again, you know, as a very evidence-based approach on this. And they cite the prior work that's been done. And as you know, since Paul Merrick published his retrospective single center cohort analysis, there's been no studies that have shown any significant patient-centered outcome improvement from getting this metabolic cocktail. So they do not recommend doing that. They also mention things like vitamin D, either alone or in combination with vitamin C, thiamine, or corticosteroids probably don't make sense unless you have an extremely strong suspicion that someone has a profound, profound deficiency in either one of these. And in that case, it might make sense to administer. They do address the corticosteroid controversy that you've probably seen in your career go from one end to the other. And again, I think it's a very logical, it's a very evidence-based recommendation that if you are worried that there is adrenal insufficiency, by all means, give steroids. If they take 
high dose steroids to begin with, it makes sense. All comers, however, do not benefit from this and really try to emphasize that the ones that do benefit, you should think about it, but not everyone coming through the ED needs to have steroids administered. So no surprises there. I think that's pretty much in line with what we've seen in the past. All right, Gabe, I would say this has been an enormously beneficial and truly helpful podcast discussion. I think you've really brought us up to date in ED sepsis resuscitation as we sit here and record this in May of 2021. So with that, let me ask you for what are your really key take-home points? You know, throughout this discussion, what would you want to leave us with as we finish this discussion, finish this podcast, and then we head into our next shift where undoubtedly we're going to have a septic patient? Yeah. So I think the first thing is just to remember that sepsis is such a darn heterogeneous condition, right? That you should be thoughtful in your approach to these patients. A lot of what we've been told to do is a one-size-fits-all approach. And maybe take a step back, look at the patient you're taking care of in front of you and say, what's best for them? Taking the best available evidence and now armed with, you know, this task force recommendation. I'd say also, if you're going to deviate from what your hospital wants you to do from their set bundles, at least document in your note, explain your rationale, because I think ultimately, despite these quality measures being there, we all want to see patients getting the best possible care. And a one-size-fits-all approach does not equal the best care for every patient we're taking care of. The second thing I want to emphasize is that if there's diagnostic uncertainty, maybe spend that extra little time trying to think what's going on with the patient. And if you come to the conclusion that they're sepsis, by all means, right? We know that a lot of these aspects of these bundles make a lot of sense when we have clear diagnostic certainty. But if there's diagnostic uncertainty, there are potential harms that are extremely common when we blast people unnecessarily with antibiotics or we give them extremely high amounts of fluid. So think about that. So again, to emphasize, right? It really is these bundles do have a role for most patients when there's good diagnostic certainty. But if there's not, really think about what you're doing with the patient. I think also, you know, to highlight some of the things that we spoke about, and I'll just, you know, I think the two that are the most important, one does have to do with fluid resuscitation. Hopefully we will see the next iteration of the surviving sepsis campaign and SEP1 divorce itself from the 30 mLs per kilo fluid bolus. There is actually, for those of you excited, starting July 1, for patients with heart failure and renal failure, you can put that in your documentation and the SEP1 bundle will ignore the fluid bolus component. So keep that in mind. I'd also say again with antibiotics, again, remind yourself on the evidence on what we're trying to do here. The best evidence when you'll be saving lives by administering the earliest is going to be in patients with septic shock. And you probably have a little bit of wiggle room for those that are not in shock yet. And again, that's supported by evidence that we have and also now by this task force and their recommendations. As I said, Gabe, this has been really, truly an amazing podcast. I can't thank you enough for coming back on the podcast, leading us through this discussion, really bringing our listeners up to date. It's truly been great. Great to catch up with you, and I can't wait to have you back on the podcast for some more EM, resuscitation, and critical care topics. My thanks to you for joining us. Thank you once again. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Please let us know if you have any questions on any of the content that we talked about. I certainly will put the link to that Annals article that is in press in our handout for this podcast. Once again, this is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. So thankful that you joined us for this podcast. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Bye for now.